Lord, where would we be without your mercy? In Sunday school, we were reminded of what we were before your mercy intervened in our lives. We were hopelessly lost on our way to hell and fully deserved it. And yet your mercy changed us. Thank you for your saving mercy that you would die on the cross, rise again as we've been singing this morning, that our sins are no longer the barrier between you and us. And thank you for the promise of new mercies every morning. And Lord, we are looking to you for that this morning. Lord, so many needs in this room, people listening online, and you have a mercy for each one of us. And so I pray you pour it out upon this assembly this morning. Lord, I pray you pour out mercy on any who don't know you yet, who are still dead in their sins and trespasses, still without hope and without God in this world, that you'd have mercy on them. I pray you'd have mercy on any who are weary and heavy laden, that they would come to you and find your rest for their souls. Lord, whatever the need is, Lord, your mercy is sufficient. And so we ask you to work through your word now. In Christ's name, amen. A Christian brother was sharing with me about his son's new car stereo system. And he said, you know how I'm praying? I'm praying that it gets stolen. <laughs> and you have the same question I did. Why would a dad ask that kind of a request from God? And so he explained so that he will realize that material things ultimately disappoint rather than satisfy. And the earlier he learns that, the better off he will be. Well, we might not be sure what to think about his specific request, but he had a very clear reason for asking it. Our text for today is called A Prayer of David, and one thing we'll notice as we walk through it is how often David offers solid reasons for most of the requests he is making to God. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Psalm 86. We'll continue our study of summer psalms. Psalm 86. Verse 1. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am afflicted and needy. So David's first request is that God would listen to him. And the reason he thinks God would pay attention to his prayer is because he is afflicted and needy. If you have the word poor, it's used in the sense of going through a tough time. For example, if one of your children is covered in mosquito or chigger bites and they're just itching like crazy, we might say, oh, that poor kid. That's not a statement about their financial condition. It's a statement about how miserable they are. 
And so David is afflicted. He's troubled. He's going through a tough time. And he is needy, which means he has a lot of needs. As we go through the psalm, we'll see he needs help, strength, protection, guidance, encouragement, and a number of other things. And maybe you're here this morning and you say, yeah, I've got a lot of needs too. I've got some physical needs or emotional needs or relational needs or financial needs. I've got needs. I'm needy. So what is the connection between a request that God would hear us and being poor and needy? And we go back to what we saw in Psalm 103 a couple weeks ago. Remember the verse, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Or in verse 15, David will say, You, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious. So our God is a compassionate and merciful God, which means he has tender concern for those in need or misery and an inclination to help them. So David appeals to what he knows is true about God. God is the kind of God who cares about afflicted, needy people. And so I can call on him when I'm afflicted and needy, and I know he'll listen to me. He won't ignore me in my time of distress. And if we're here this morning and we're feeling afflicted or needy, we can appeal to God to listen to our prayers on the same basis. Verse 2 Preserve my soul, for I am a godly man. O you, my God, save your servant who trusts in you. These requests indicate David is in some kind of dangerous situation, so he's asking God to rescue him from harm and keep him safe despite his enemies, whom he'll mention in verse 14. But what do we do with his reason for this request? For I am holy, or I am Godly. Well, both words basically mean set apart. Namely, I am set apart as one of your people. I belong to you, Lord. I'm not among the ungodly who disregard you, are not part of your covenant. You're my God, and I'm counting on you to deliver me. In Psalm 119.94, he says, I am yours. Save me. So you see the connection? I belong to you. So come through and rescue. Verse 3, be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you I cry all day long. To be gracious is to show kindness and favor even when it's not deserved. And the reason for this request is I'm crying out to you all day long. So I know I'm not entitled to your help. You don't owe me anything. But I'm asking you to deal with me simply because of your grace, your undeserved kindness and favor to those who deserve the opposite. I thought of Hebrews 4, just a great verse about prayer. It says, because of Jesus, therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Why? So that we may receive mercy, and find grace to help in time of need. So I'm in time of need. I need grace and mercy. 
You go to it by asking God for it. And that's what David is doing. Verse 4, back in Psalm 86. Make glad the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. In other words, I can't make my own soul glad. Have you ever felt that way? Just so discouraged by what's going on in your life, hard stuff, painful stuff, bad stuff. You just can't stop feeling rotten. Other people can't cheer you up. Nothing seems to work. You're just kind of stuck in a foul mood, basically waiting for the circumstances to change. That's where a lot of us go. Just like, life stinks right now, and I'm going to kind of just have a stinky attitude until it stops being so stinky. (laughs) Right? I mean, I go there. But David models a different approach than that. He doesn't pray, change my circumstances, although there's plenty of psalms that are like that. But in this psalm, instead of saying, God, change the circumstances, he says, make my soul glad. And the reason is because I'm lifting up my soul to you. I'm counting on the fact you're the one who's willing and able to make a soul glad when it isn't. And you can see that in other psalms. Psalm 4, verse 7. David says, You have put gladness in my heart. You have put joy, ESV, in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. Or Psalm 90. Psalm 90. This prayer, verse 14, oh, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us and the years we have seen evil. Or Psalm 92, for you, O Lord, have made me glad by what you have done. I will sing for joy at the work of your hands. So God is willing and able to take a discouraged soul and turn it around to be glad. It takes nothing less than God's power to do that when you're really downcast. But David at least asks, Lord, would you do that for me? My soul needs you to make it glad. Verse 5, back in Psalm 86. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer and give heed to the voice of my supplications. Oops. Yeah. So another reason David's praying is because he knows God is good. And unlike some people who are reluctant to forgive us, God is ready to forgive us. Doesn't have to have his arm twisted to forgive us. And not only that, he is abounding in loving kindness or steadfast love to all who call on him. He's overflowing with love and mercy and kindness to everyone who calls on his name, including to David when he's calling or to us as we call. We can count on that to be true. Verse 6 and 7. I guess just verse 7. In the day of my trouble, I 
shall call upon you, for you will answer me. So here's a humble request for God to please hear his prayers along with the reason he's confident that God will answer. So sometimes people don't get back to us in a timely manner. I've texted a few guys this week, and it's taken them days, some of them to reply, some of them I still haven't heard back from. Or maybe you've called someone and left a voicemail hoping to hear back, and the other person hasn't returned your call. So we know what it's like to call somebody or try to reach out to somebody and not hear back. And we'd be in trouble if God was like that with us, especially if it was a day of trouble. But David's convinced God will respond to him in the day of trouble. He knows God himself said in Psalm 50, call upon me in the day of trouble. God says, I will deliver you and you will honor or glorify me. So David knows God hears me when I call. He will answer. Verses 8 through 10. There is no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name, for you are great and do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. So in the middle of a bunch of requests at the beginning and the end of this psalm, David shifts from his own personal needs and his own immediate concerns to the greatness and glory of God. How did he get there? And it's hard to know for sure since he doesn't give us any verbal clues in the text for why he switched gears. But here's one possible way it might have worked based on what he wrote in Psalm 46. So let's go to Psalm 46. And this is uh, kind of ties in with what Lane shared. We get overwhelmed by our circumstances and our problems. And, you know, that's where David's starting the psalm, right? He's crying out, God, help. It's, I'm in trouble. I'm in a day of trouble. I'm afflicted. I'm needy. So pretty overwhelming going on. And now he's Overwhelmed by God. So in Psalm 46, you know how it starts. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea. So this is a time of trouble, some kind of upheaval, some kind of crisis. Later he mentions the nations making an uproar and people's tottering. It goes on like that. But then when we get to verse 10, God says, Be still or cease striving and know that I am God. In other words, in the middle of all this chaos, stop being all worked up, all upset, all agitated, all stressed out. Settle down for a moment and remember the basic reality that God is God. And that reminder can give us 
a much clearer perspective on what's going on around us, even though it might seem like everything's out of control at the moment. Psalm 46 sounds like the world is going crazy. And maybe you feel like the world's going crazy and could make a pretty good case for that. But no matter how crazy it is or gets, God is still God. And so back in Psalm 86, it's a day of trouble. David's afflicted and needy. He's discouraged. He can't even make his own soul glad. And he's reminding himself of realities that are true about God. First, there is no one like God. Moses says in Exodus 15, 11, who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? David himself in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 22. For this reason you are great, O Lord, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And there are no works like gods. Who else can speak the universe into existence? Who else can part the Red Sea? As believers, we could add, who else could raise Jesus from the dead or bring spiritually dead people back to life? No one but God. And then in verse 10, he says, you alone are God, which is, of course, one of the themes of the whole Bible, one of the big themes of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. There is no God besides me. Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation and let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me or is there any other rock I know of? None. And because God is so great and he does wondrous deeds, he is worthy to be honored by all people, and he will receive worship and glory from all the nations. Next month, Lord willing, we will be in Psalm 66, and the Shramics are with us. And I'm going to go with verse 4. Psalm 66, verse 4 says, All the earth will worship you and will sing praises to you. They will sing praises to your name. So one application of these verses from 8 to 10 would be a reminder, this is the God we're praying to. Remembering who God is will encourage us when we're in a situation that seems impossible because he's almighty God, therefore nothing is too difficult for him. When we feel like things are hopeless, he is able to do far more than we can ask or think. Another application would be how we think about missions. So next Sunday, as you heard in the announcement, Lord willing, we'll have Joe and Mary Berg with us as our special guest. They are working with Muslims in the Middle East. Progress is slow. It's challenging work. How do they know they're not just wasting their time? 
how do we know we're not wasting our money and our prayers in supporting them? And it's verses like Psalm 66.4 and Psalm 86. What is it? Nine. God has a purpose to have worshipers gathered from all the nations. And God's purposes cannot fail. Remember back in Job 42, verse 2, I know, O Lord, that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted or frustrated. So if God has said, my purpose is to have representatives from every people group in the world I created around the throne, that cannot be thwarted. It will come to pass. And when we get to the book of Revelation, we find out, big surprise, God actually accomplished exactly what he said. Revelation chapter 7, 9 says, I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So it's going to happen. It's not wasting time. It's the only sure thing there is, is that God will have a people for himself. So after reminding himself of who God is and the big picture of what God is doing in the world, David returns to some more requests. Verse 11 Back in Psalm 86, teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. So David prays for the Lord to guide him. Psalm 25, verse 4. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you, the God of my salvation, for you, I wait all the day. So we need guidance. We have decisions to make. We want to know what to do. The Bible is very clear on a lot of the things that we need to decide on, but there's things that don't have a specific verse that tell us we should do this. And so we seek the Lord's guidance, and it says he will guide us. But David knows he needs more than just instruction. He needs God to work in his heart. So he says, instruct me and unite my heart to fear your name. Just a recognition, our hearts are divided. They are prone to wander even though we know better. So one example, we can know from the Bible we are called to serve one another. And part of our hearts really wants to do that. We've tasted the joy Jesus talks about when it says it's more blessed to give than receive. We've tasted that. We know that's, that's a good pathway to joy. But in other parts of our heart are very selfish and doesn't want to deal with the inconvenience and the extra effort of serving somebody. We'd rather serve ourselves. So I've got this divided heart. What do I do with that? And I get a clue from David. I, I pray that God would unite my heart to where it needs to be. The specific 
goal in, in verse 11 is to have an appropriate reverence for God, but it applies for anything that God calls us to do. Is I need a heart that's united to pursue it. Verse 12 and 13, I will give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with all my heart and will glorify your name forever for your loving kindness toward me is great and you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. So here David gives wholehearted thanks and honor to God for his great love and for delivering his soul from the depths of Sheol, which means the place of the dead. So God had rescued his life when it was threatened at some point, and he's giving thanks for that. Verse 14 and 15. O oh God, arrogant men have risen up against me, and a band of violent men have sought my life. And they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness and truth. Turn to me and be gracious to me. O grant your strength to your servant and save the son of your handmaid. So again, rehearsing the character of God. We saw that in Psalm 103. It comes out of Exodus 34 knowing that God is merciful, God is gracious. Look at this connection. Oh God, you are a God merciful and gracious. Be gracious. You are this, be this. You see that in Psalm 31. God, you are a rock, be to me a rock. You said this is true about you. I want to experience that in my life, in my situation, that you're my rock. I want to experience that you are gracious in this situation where I have enemies. Again, if you read his biography in First and Second Samuel, you know there's Saul, there's Absalom, there's a host of other people who are always wanting to get rid of him. And on the day he wrote this particular psalm, he's feeling rather weak. He says, my strength isn't enough for this situation, Lord. I need you to grant me your strength. I can't do this. Ever get that feeling? I can't do this. This is too much. It's too hard. I'm weak. I need you to grant strength. And if you don't do it, I won't be able to. And then there's promises like Deuteronomy 33, 25. As your days, so shall your strength be. So you have a particularly hard day tomorrow. You'll get extra strength tomorrow for tomorrow. You don't get it today. And if you try to borrow against it, you'll feel overwhelmed in the other way Lane talked about because you don't have strength for tomorrow yet. But you'll get strength for tomorrow, tomorrow. Or the other one, of course, is Isaiah 40, where God says, He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. So if we're feeling weak and we need strength, we wait on the Lord for it. We ask him for it and wait for him to give it to us. And then there's verse 17. Show me a sign for good that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed because you, O oh Lord, 
have helped me and comforted me. So this is a prayer that basically is saying, Lord, please reassure me that you're with me and for me. Please intervene in such an obvious way that even those who hate me will see it. Please give me some kind of sign that you have helped and comforted me. Now we know 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says we walk by faith, not by sight. Okay? And that's where we want to be. That's what we want to do. But there are some days when our faith is weak. And it would just really help if God would show us a sign for good. So before you throw any rocks at David and scold him for walking by sight instead of faith, remember God himself calls David a man after my own heart. So even a man after God's own heart got so discouraged, he needed a sign for good. So that should be encouraging to us, that it's okay. So it's okay to ask, Lord, for some kind of breakthrough in the current situation, some kind of clear, obvious answer to prayer, some situation turning out much better than I thought it might Something that would encourage us that he's working on our behalf. One of my favorite examples of that is Gideon. You may remember God called him to deliver Israel from the Midianites. He was overwhelmed in the negative sense by doubts and fears about that. And so he asked God for a sign. So go to Judges 6. Judges chapter 6. We'll start at verse 36. Then Gideon said to God, If you will deliver Israel through me, as you have spoken, behold, I will put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only and it is dry on all the ground, then I will know that you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken. And it was so. When he arose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he drained the dew from the fleece, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not let your anger burn against me that I may speak once more. Please let me make a test once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, and let there be dew on all the ground. God did so that night, for it was dry only on the fleece, and dew was on all the ground. Now Gideon already knew what the Lord's will was. Which means this is not endorsing the superstitious way some Christians try to discern God's will for their life. He already knew. His faith was weak. And God patiently reassures Gideon, I'll be with you and I'll help you. And the reason I'm emphasizing patience is 
for the parents in the room, if you tell your kid you need to clean your room, you've actually told them more than once, because we know this backstory, it's happened more than once, and they say, um, could you give me a sign that you want me to clean your room? <laughs> yeah, you don't need a sign. <laughs> I think I would be very tempted to be impatient at that point. Like, get that room cleaned. And God, in theory, could have treated Gideon like that. I already told you. Deliver Israel from the Midianites. I already told you that a couple times. You don't need a sign. And so it highlights the patience, the mercy, the compassion of God that even though Gideon didn't deserve to have a sign, God patiently provides one. And then right after that, as chapter 7 starts, God trims Gideon's army down to 300 men to go up against an army of 135,000 Midianites. If you do the math, that comes out to 450 to 1 odds. The Battle of the Alamo was 10 to 1. And the Texans inside the Alamo weren't thinking this is a pretty good shot. 450 to 1 would be humanly impossible. They are hopelessly outnumbered. They're not going to survive, let alone win this battle. So it'd be safe to assume everybody in the camp, including Gideon, is feeling very nervous <laughs> about what's going to happen in the next 24 hours? And we would too. But look what God does. Judges 7, verse 9. Now the same night it came about that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hands. But, if you are afraid to go down, go with Pura, your servant, down to the camp. And you will hear what they say, and afterward your hands will be strengthened so that you may go down against the camp. So he went with Pura, his servant, down to the outposts of the army that was in the camp. Now the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the sons of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. When Gideon came, behold, a man was relating a dream to his friend. And he said, Behold, I had a dream. A loaf of barley bread was tumbling into the camp of Midian, and it came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. His friend replied, This is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, the man of Israel. God has given Midian and all the camp into his hand.
Gideon did not ask for this sign. God took the initiative. He says, if you're afraid, <laughs> go down and listen. And Gideon went and listened. So he was afraid. And he provides this sign to encourage his wavering faith. God completely orchestrated the timing that this Midianite soldier would have that specific dream and that he would tell his friend that dream at that moment when Gideon and Pura were listening and that that friend would interpret it the dream in light of what was going to happen and that that would encourage and strengthen Gideon's hands to do what he had been called to do. And verse 15 says, when Gideon heard the account of the dream and its interpretation, he bowed in worship. He didn't go to a temple. He didn't go to a church building. He didn't get some musicians and singers together and sing choruses. He responded to the worth of God in his heart, which is what worship is. The singing and other things are expressions of what needs to be in here. And I think he said something like, thank you, Lord. You are so good to me. Thank you for letting me hear this conversation. Thank you for encouraging me. I bless your holy name. And it's just, isn't God so kind? He knows our frame. He remembers we're but dust. He knows our faith is weak and needs reassurance. He knows our fears and doubts and the best way to encourage us. And so when we're in the middle of a day of trouble and we're feeling afflicted and needy, it's okay to ask him, God, would you please show me a sign for good so that my soul doesn't sink down in despair? It's okay to pray that way because God is compassionate and merciful and understands us. Well, as we close, we need to clarify that what we saw in this psalm presupposes you have a relationship with God. God hears and answers the prayers of his children, but he is not obligated to respond to those who are outside of his family. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 says this. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So there's a blockage for all people because of sin. We've all sinned against God. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Indeed, there's not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. And the Bible is also very clear that we can't make things right with God by our own efforts. In Isaiah 64.6, it says, All of us have become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. All of us are withered like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. So even good things like going to church or trying to live a respectable life do not and cannot make up for our sins. They can't take away the barrier between us and God. 
The only way that any of us can have a relationship with a holy God is through Jesus Christ. He is the only one who can remove the barrier of our sin and restore us to God. If God is calling you this morning, repent of your sins, turn from that, and believe in Jesus. Believe that his death on the cross is the only payment for the debt of sin that God will accept. And believe that he rose from the dead to show that the debt was paid in full so that all who believe in him will be rescued from sin and reconciled to God. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Let's pray. And so, Lord, I pray that that's what would happen even this morning, that just as Paul wrote those words to a church, that there would be someone listening this morning that recognize they aren't right with you, they don't have peace with you, there's a barrier between you and them, and that they would turn away from sin and turn to Christ. And Lord, those who know you, Lord, we thank you for these examples in the Psalms of praying. Lord, our prayer lives need help. And Lord, just thank you for this example of the way David gives reasons for requests. Lord, thank you that you provide that for us so that we can appeal to you in the same way. Pray for any who are afflicted and needy and in a day of trouble, Lord, that they would call on you and that you would show them a sign for good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.